1: It's Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism, coming to you from 2 scr in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Olivia Rosenman, and this week on the show, we are discussing the media reform bill that has just passed the Senate, and what it means for the future of Australia's media industry. I'm joined in the studio by contributing editor of the New Daily and chairman of the Walkley Foundation, Quentin Dempster. Hi, Quentin. Hi, Olivia. And on the line from Melbourne, journalist and associate professor at Monash University's School of Media, Film and Journalism, Margaret Simons. Hi, Margaret. Hello. Hello. And journalist with New Matilda and Crikey, Ben Eltham. Thanks for joining us, Ben.
2: Hello, how are you?
1: Good, thank you. After months of negotiations with crossbench senators, the government's media reform bill finally passed the Senate on September 14th. The bill is the last in a long line of attempts by both Liberal and Labor governments over almost five years. The biggest winners are TV and radio broadcasters, with the removal of broadcast license fees set to save them around $90 million a year. And media moguls like Murdoch and Bruce Gordon, with the repeal of the 2 out of 3 rule and the 75% audience reach media ownership rule. ...included in the bill, such as changes to gambling, advertising, and a fund for journalism, which we will talk about. But let's first just take a moment to discuss the changes to audience reach. Considering that the majority of Australians get their news online, just how relevant were these laws that have been rolled back, Ben?
2: Arguably not that relevant. Um, Obviously they don't actually affect the online regulation at all. They're really a broadcasting regulation so um, they're not going to affect anyone who gets their news from online. They do have some implications for the broadcasting side of things But you're right, given that the the internet dominates the way Australians consume their news now, uh, you could argue that this was essentially an an archaic regulation.
1: And was there any point in actually going through all this rigmarole to get rid of them then?
2: The government certainly believes there was a point. It's been trying to do this for some years now. And one of the reasons, of course, is that the traditional media has been struggling. Uh, But really, in terms of the regulations that they've repealed, it's not so much about the reach. it's really about the ownership. And what, this, what these regulations will do is allow some of the traditional media organisations to investigate perhaps merging.
1: Margaret, in a piece for The Guardian, you wrote, Never before in the history of Australian parliaments has so much labour been spent by so many governments over changes to laws that almost everyone agreed needed to go. So why did it take so much time and so much effort to get rid of well, them? Well,
0: partly because the media moguls, um, and you know, we can talk right back to the days of Terry Packer here, Terry Stokes, Lupert Murdoch. Only recently did they actually agree on exactly they, what they wanted the new regime to look like. Previously, there was always disagreement between them. And, of course, governments are very wary of upsetting media moguls. And so successive ministers for communications have said things like, well, you know, agree on what you want and then we'll look at it. And various attempts to make reforms have failed on that. Then also, of course, while... Nobody can really argue that we that these laws were good or relevant or up-to-date. The inevitable consequence of getting rid of them will be more concentration of media ownership. And we already have one of the most concentrated media ownership landscapes in the world. And so even those people who couldn't defend the current regime or the regime that existed until the last couple of weeks um, were still reluctant to see change because of the implications of that change.
1: All right, so let's talk more about that concentration. Quentin, what changes in the media landscape do you think we can expect to see as a result of these new ownership laws?
3: Murdoch could buy nine. Murdoch could buy seven. Seven could merge uh, with news or uh, with Bruce Gordon's uh, outfit, subject to uh, some of the voice uh, constraints that still exist in metropolitan markets, according to Mitch Fifield, the uh, the Minister for Communications. Uh, this is digital disruption, uh, because uh, outsiders, interlopers <laughs> in the Australian jurisdiction, have got access to the eyeballs of Australia now. Um, the video streamers are there: Netflix, uh, Stan, uh, others. Um, they're uh, they're getting in on the on the act because they do have access through Wi-Fi video streaming. And uh, if you've got eyeballs, you've got uh, money. Uh, Google and Facebook are as aggregators and. Uh, with uh, internet browsing and uh, and uh, Facebook content, everybody has to put their co- content up on Facebook. Now, the ad revenue is gone, is declining rapidly from what's called mainstream media to these other players and I think the industry did have a very strong case to say look these constraints which were meant to uh, to give uh, a, a, a more diverse media in local markets, metropolitan regional markets, is not relevant anymore. So they had a strong case. What's going to happen? I, I don't know the CBS hand grenade with CBS coming in to take over Channel 10 before these uh, laws got through has really made it extremely interesting. If CBS does end up with Channel 10, it may well want to merge with others. It may well look at radio, uh, metropolitan radio, regional radio, uh, other print outlets.
1: And what do you think this means for the news and media that Australians consume?
3: Uh, I don't know yet. Um, the, the bulk of the, uh, the audience is uh, there's a huge number of people now only access their media on devices. Uh, and uh, uh, everybody is watching that uh, intently. We don't know who's going to end up still standing after the, the digital revolution. For audiences, have already been exposed to a multiplicity of uh, other sources. I mean, you can get into the New York Times and the Washington Post, you can either go to paywalls or or free content now. It's... it's uh, it's a cornucopia of content. There's a lot of rubbish, but there's also some very good stuff there that's really broadening. So it's exciting in the sense of if you're just a consumer uh, and, and an audience, a, a, an inquisitive member of the, of the audience wanting information, you can get a hell of a lot out of it. What's really distressing to me is that this has just decimated journalism in Australia. Uh, the monetising of local journalism in Australia. We lost thousands of journalists in the mainstream media, and uh, I'm desperately concerned with the interlopers uh, coming over the top. Uh, that what are we going to do to sustain and monetise local content and uh, keep a domestic journalism going.
1: So let's talk about some of those measures because there were a few in the bill, notably introduced by Nick Xenophon, to try and keep, as you said, the Australian journalism operations that are really struggling to try and keep them afloat. So those measures were a $60 million fund for regional and small publishers with a turnover of less than $30 million, an ACCC inquiry into Facebook, Google, and the impact other internet giants are having on the media industry and 200 cadetships of up to $40,000 a year subsidised by the government for small and regional publications. Xenophon said that he introduced these measures to redress the crisis that journalism is facing in this country and that it was the best package to ensure more journalists get employed. Ben, what do you think? Will it work?
2: In short, no, it won't work. Uh, it might make a, a little bit of a difference at the margins and it will certainly help some of those smaller publishers perhaps in the regions and some of the smaller mainstream Metro publishers like maybe the New Daily, maybe New Matilda, maybe Crikey. I mean, interestingly, New Matilda has already said that we're not interested in taking the money because we have concerns about what that says about the independence of the publication. The Cadetships is obviously welcome, but. None of this is going to make a big difference when we compare it to the thousands of journalism jobs that have been lost over the last few years. And, of course, what's driving that, as both Margaret and Clinton have said, is the digital disruption. It's the entry of the U.S. tech giants into the media and the the way that they've monopolized or oligopolized the advertising revenue that used to support journalism. And nothing in these media reforms will address that problem.
1: Right, this could be considered as the first time that the government has actually formally recognised the impact of those tech giants you mentioned, Ben, and recognised that commercial media needs some assistance. But what was missing from the bill was any idea of a levy or a fund from Facebook or Google. This is an idea that has been raised before. So what happened to it, Margaret? Where did that idea go? It was an idea that
0: was raised as a result of a convergence review which was set up by the Labour government um, and it made a recommendation that there be Australian content, fans, including journalism, based on a levy of large media players. And while Google and uh, Facebook wouldn't have been included at the time that report was written, certainly would be included now. They would meet the criteria. So the idea was proposed then. Nothing happened with it, as uh, tends to be the case with communications and media policy in this country. Uh, good ideas tend to fall by the wayside at fairly regular rates. Um, and it was proposed, again, as part of the Senate inquiry into public interest journalism, and a number of submissions, including some that I had a, a hand in co-authoring. I gather it was raised during negotiations, but obviously got nowhere, and Senator Nick Xenophon has said that the negotiations were extremely tough. I would say that I agree with Ben that, in itself, the $60 million fund and so on is nowhere near adequate, because for the first time that we've actually government explicitly say that maybe journalism does need government support as a form of Australian content. And I think that is an important principle. The quantum of money involved is nowhere near enough to make a significant difference. In fact, it doesn't even equal the amount of money that's been cut from journalism at the ABC, for example. Um, But the principle, I think, is actually quite important and could be built on. The other thing that's terrible about the way it's been set up, of course, is that it was deliberately set up to exclude The Guardian in Australia, and if the editor of The Guardian in Australia. And, and Taylor is to believe, believe in what she's been publishing about this. That was quite a corrupt and politically motivated process, which is disgraceful. But I think the principle is important. I think it's the first time that that principle has been accepted by Parliament, and I think it could be built on by, um, by a different government.
3: Well, Margaret, could you enlighten me? In your work with the, on the convergence uh, reviewed were you able to uh, work out what jurisdictions either then or since uh, in Europe in particular uh, have moved to these content funds to make by law tech giants like Google and Facebook contribute to a local content fund rather than putting you know, arbitrary quotas yeah, on but
0: there's not much um, of the idea of a levy at the moment Queen, you know, though it's been discussed in a number of jurisdictions notably Canada most recently But there are an increasing range of systems of government support for journalism from direct subsidies to newspapers to systems of grants right across Europe and, as I I mentioned, in Canada. Of course, the emergence of Google and Facebook as the enormous challenge they are to digital advertising content is really only about 18 months old. Yeah. And um, I think governments are still struggling with that, including the idea of a levy. This idea that um, journalism, in a sense, is a kind of national content which needs support in the same ways that we might support the film industry, for example, or other kinds of national content, you know, that is an idea whose time has come, I think. And while the Xenophon package is nowhere near adequate to address the crisis, I think it's an important principle which can be built on.
3: Here, uh, here. The A Triple C Rod Sims. He's going to be tasked by the Treasurer Scott Morrison to start the investigation on the impact on the new uh, digital in- environment on media from the first of December. So uh, we've got an ongoing um, observation to make about the A Triple C's work. Have you anybody, Ben? Have you seen that Rod Sims is uh, amenable to looking at uh, solutions to this problem?
2: Look, I've seen nothing from rod sims that would indicate what his views would be certainly i mean it's a major competition issue just in terms of competition law leaving aside the issues of journalism and of media diversity i mean we know from the international data that facebook and google are oligopolizing about 80 percent of advertising revenue online so that's an incredible duopoly right there and we also know that the bulk of the, the Australian digital advertising revenue is being captured by those two platforms. So I would have thought that's a major competition issue right there, even leaving aside the, the media and journalism implications.
3: Are these advertisers getting any bang for their buck? I mean, they, all the new media is going to, online media is going to the millennials who haven't got any money. I mean, the, apparently all the, <laughs> the disposable discretionary uh, wealth in the country still resides in the over-55s.
2: Well, the over 55s are on social media as well, Quinton. And as we have found out with the US elections, uh, the the power of these platforms, particularly Facebook, is that they're incredibly targeted so that they can drill down to incredibly small demographics and tailor advertising messages for those very, very small targets. And that's the power of those platforms for shaping public opinion. And of course, that's what's underlying so much of the concern in the US right now about Facebook's role in the 2016 US election. Well,
0: that's part of what worries me about the ACC inquiry, while it's better than nothing. The FTC is, of course, set up to police markets. It's, it's a competition regulator. It's well outside its ambit to consider other issues to do with civic society, such as the role of journalism, such as formation of political opinion. And, um, you know, there's not a perfect crossover there. If it looks only at issues of um, the efficient operation of markets, it's not going to be looking at all of the issues that we're concerned here. And that's why the a has been a pretty blunt instrument for dealing with issues to do with journalism and news media for for many decades now. No, good point.
1: And just how possible is it actually for the Australian government if they do decide on something like a levy to stand up to Organisations like Facebook and Google, we're a pretty small market for them in the grand scheme of things. Well,
0: I think I think regulation is the answer to this. I mean, we we've been talking about reforms that have gotten rid of outdated regulations, but nobody is talking comprehensively about what a new, up to date, nimble and relevant system of regulation might look like. But I do think regulation of Facebook is certainly being vigorously discussed in the United States at the moment. Um, and is something which we need to be talking about here. But unfortunately, in media policy in Australia, and talking about going right back to the days of Menzies, we haven't really got a media policy. Neither side of politics actually has a media policy. <laughs> Rather, they have these uh, very reactive ideas about getting rid of current regulations, which, as I say, are you know outdated. Nobody defends them. But nobody is actually thinking, well, what would a relevant, up-to-date, nimble, in-the-public-interest system of media regulation look like now? And, you know, somebody needs to pick that up. It's a policy issue.
1: So another idea that's been floated before, but once again was missing from this most recent bill, was tax breaks for investments in journalism. Does anyone think that that's a good idea that might have an impact on the industry?:
0: I think it's a good idea, and, and advocate it for in submissions to the Senate Committee. I think there's two kinds of tax breaks. And again, these ideas aren't new. There are applica to journalism might be new. The Australian film industry has benefited over many years, and, and television content industry as well has benefited over many years from a variety of um, incentive schemes, tax incentive schemes, to encourage investment in Australian content. All I'm arguing for in that case is that journalism should be understood as a particularly vital part of Australian content, and that uh, investment in journalism should be given, it should be incentivised through the tax system.
3: The, yes, uh, the point you're making is that the A Triple C is not necessarily the investigative vehicle to deliver recommendations which would go down that track. Uh, we haven't seen Scott Morrison's uh, terms of reference to the A Triple C. He could task them with uh, with doing such a thing. So I suppose that's a... I uh, have to hit the phones as a journalist to find out. Give us a look at the terms of reference. How, have they been formed yet?
0: Well, as usual, they've all seen the detail on the terms of reference in that inquiry and also the <laughs> one that's muted into the ABC. Competition law simply cannot deal with the whole bundle of issues that we're talking about here. It. It's, it's only a parcel um, way of dealing with it. But the other kind of tax break that could be given, we now have a number of not-for-profit journalism enterprises in the Australian ecosystem. Um, Unicor is one of them. Um, the Guardian in Australia, of course, tax breaks for philanthropic donations to journalism, so that um, people who donate to a not-for-profit journalism outlet um, can actually claim tax deduction. This is something which is already the case in the States, where there are a number of not-for-profit investigative journalists and enterprises. And that's something that could be looked at here. And again, that was seriously discussed by the Senate Committee, but hasn't been reflected in the Legislation.
1: I read a description of Google and Facebook written by a man called Jonathan Taplin. Google and Facebook are in the extraction industry, that their business model is to extract as much personal data from as many people as possible at the lowest possible price, and then to resell that data at the highest possible price. And he wrote that description in a book called Move Fast and Break Things, How Facebook, Google and Amazon Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy. Would you agree with that? Would you agree that these companies are undermining democracy?
3: Yes, there's a very real risk and concern, particularly after uh, Mark Zuckerberg has come out, uh, not with a complete mea culpa, but an acknowledgement that uh, Facebook had been used as a distorting influence in the U.S. presidential election. Anybody can open a Facebook account, and uh, hundreds have, with uh, all sorts of uh, uh, false uh, agendas. It's uh, given to rise to the term uh, fake news. In the US case, uh, it was to try to muddy the waters to such an extent that people stayed at home uh, and they didn't uh, become engaged in the political process. That's playing out now. So they are a, a threat to democracy until such time as uh, uh, as they establish, hopefully self in a self-regulatory way, because... Don't get me wrong, there are many exciting things about the digital revolution to the empowerment of people and from uh, uh, the voiceless having a voice and finding people of like mind all around the world. It's a wonderful thing. There's also trolls and and, uh, really uh, bad behaviour and the dark web and all sorts of other things uh, that is playing through the digital revolution. But as far as influence on people is concerned, manipulative, uh, malign influence on people and which way they're going to operate within a democracy is a real danger there. And we've got to, all of us got to call it out when we see it. And there has to be discussed. We've got a, a reasonably high standard of media consciousness in Australia uh, and around the world that uh, thinking people have got to really concentrate on, on this uh, potential for distortion.
1: It's been estimated that we've lost around 3,000 journalism jobs in Australia in the past five years. Although if you weren't up to speed with that, you might not realise it if you aren't in the industry. If you go to the news agent, or not that anyone does that anymore, if you read news online, there's still plenty of content being generated. Ben, what have we lost with the loss of those jobs?
2: Oh, we have lost substantial levels of coverage, I think. Um, perhaps not so much in federal politics, but certainly in complex policy rounds. So it's very hard now to get detailed regular coverage of policy areas like welfare like industrial relations even of state parliaments Um, and I think where we're really starting to miss it is in areas like for example local government I know that Margaret has drawn attention to this in some of her work it's really quite difficult to get sustained scrutiny of local governments and that's important because look what's happening in Ipswich Council, for example, at the moment, a major corruption scandal going on over the, up there in Queensland. Um, and there really hasn't been a lot of scrutiny at local government level for some years now.
1: Right. Margaret, you were part of a study that tried to quantify the impact of journalism on our democracy and civil society. Can you tell us a bit about that?
0: Yes, it's called the Civic Impact of Journalism Project. And what we... I mean, obviously, everybody uh, talks about the importance of journalism to civic society, but it's actually look at the empirical evidence of how that works, it, it's pretty thin on the ground and usually in the corners of studies of other things. So we were trying to do a number of case studies looking at, OK, how does journalism matter and how is that changing? And one of the findings we came up with is that investigative journalism is actually, at the moment, um, doing OK. And um, the old media companies have tended to safeguard it, even as they've cut journalism jobs elsewhere. And some of the new players, such as BuzzFeed, um, such as Huffington Post and so on, have done a bit of investigative journalism as well. And um, so investigative is being time. What's being hollowed out is what I call the journal of record kind of reporting, which is the sort of non-glamorous, non-award winning, job you of know, turning up to court to do a straight report of what's happening in our court system, uh, turning up to state parliaments particularly um, and to local governments and just reporting the, the affairs of the nation. And that sort of thing is really very important. As I say, it doesn't win the award, nobody carries on about it. It's just part of the background noise of democracy. But when it's missing, it means that the system of justice itself begins to change in response to fact that there's no reporter sitting in court and no public report which allows people to know what's going on. And over and time, I think that is incredibly dangerous that we
1: that. Now, there's a bit of outcry every time Fairfax or News Corp announces another round of job cuts, but nevertheless, it seems to keep happening. Are we wasting our time with this outcry? And is it possible that we're simply just in the midst of an adjustment in the way that we get information as a society, Quentin?
3: Uh, yes, all uh, well, that's true. Um, because as we've been discussing, if the ads are gone... Uh, there's nothing to fund uh, the journalism. Uh, Margaret uh, has uh, raised you no know, other possibilities, and, and we can look at that. Uh, uh, but uh, the good old days of uh, the advertising, the classified advertising, the display advertising in print, uh, great captive audience there are gone. And uh, there are exciting possibilities for other start-ups. Uh, but the, at the moment, the critical mass of journalists uh, in Australia, I think there are about 10,000. I, I haven't got the latest figures, but be, be half that now of people who are actually <laughs> earning a living from doing journalism. Everybody can be a journalist, and <laughs> there are a lot who do it for nothing uh, because they're, uh, em- they feel empowered that way. Uh, and that's a good thing you've got to accept that uh, but uh, the monetizing of the skills of journalism of being are being destroyed uh, there's some there's some clawback from startups and we hope the startups are, are the ones that uh, uh, that end up taking over and uh, creating a whole new industry of monetized journalism but we're far far away from that there's big debates about paywalls so Rupert Murdoch always used to insist that we've got to make the people pay for it Guardian Australia doesn't charge the new daily where I work doesn't charge it's all it's all free um, crikey charges uh, new Matilda do you charge Ben no, we don't. How are you paid? How is your uh, substantial salary paid, Ben?
2: Oh yes, it's very substantial. Thanks, Quentin. Um, bringing in the big bucks. New Matilda is a community media sort of model, so it's a little bit like community radio. People can subscribe out of their own goodwill, essentially, out of the goodness of their own heart.
3: And every time you read a Guardian article, there's a little pop-up comes up and say, "Can you please contribute?" Um, um, so that it's it's fraught. Uh, those of us who want uh, journalism to be a profession uh, and for people to be able to earn a living in there and and give all, their all, their professional career all to it over a lifetime of great contribution. There's some tremendous journalists we've produced in Australia. Um, uh, We've smashed the ceiling for women journalists. uh, um, Some of our greatest journalists are women journalists in Australia. All that's happened because of a very vibrant uh, content creation, even with the constraints of uh, a concentration through News Corporation in particular, we've got a long way to go to see where journalism's monetized skilled journalism survives.
1: But as you said, Quentin, we do have a, despite various challenges in the past few years, a, a strong industry here with a good reputation. Why haven't we been able to replicate the success of what the New York Times is doing in the States and actually getting substantial subscriptions that are able to sustain their journalism?
3: bigger catchment, I suppose. Australia with 24 million has got a, a much um, more limited market. It's like anybody trying to publish books in Australia. Sure, it, but uh, we
1: also have less to cover by virtue of that as well.
3: That's true. But to get to get to a first world, we're supposed to be a first world economy, to get to a uh, sustainable uh, wage structure, salary structure in there, it takes a lot of uh, a lot of money. And uh, we're not there yet in a, in a a critical mass sense.
1: A couple of other things were included in the bill as promises of legislation to come later in the year. Deals that were made in exchange for the support of One Nation. As part of the bill, it is promised that by the end of the year the government will legislate a range of enhanced transparency measures for the public broadcasters and the inclusion of the words fair and balanced in section 8 of the ABC Act. Writing in Crikey, Bernard Keane described this as the greatest assault on the ABC's independence in decades, and he also pointed out that fair and balanced was in fact the motto of Fox News until just a few months ago. To finish up, I might ask each of you, would you agree with that description as the greatest assault on the ABC's independence in decades? Margaret, I'll start with you.
0: Well, of I'm not sure it's going to happen. I'm not sure they've got the numbers to get the legislation through, so I wouldn't have any attacks on the vapors yet. I also think the uh, fair and balanced thing is a bit of a flirty. if you read the charter of the ABC. Similar words, I think they're that impartial is the word, are already there. I don't think the insertion of those words is going to make a great deal of difference. The thing which I do think is a very real threat is the um, competitive neutrality inquiry that's suggested. The idea that we're going to look at everything the ABC does, see if it's an unfair, uh, unfair incursion on their commercial competitors or the commercial counterparts. I think that's got real legs and could be very dangerous for the public broadcaster. The rest of it, I'm actually not too concerned about. Yes, it's a bit of an invasion of privacy to, uh, to tell us what ABC presenters' salaries are, but uh, I'm sure they can deal with it.
2: Ben? I think the main issue for the ABC is really one of sustained and long-term pressure on the national broadcaster, particularly from the, the right wing of politics. So it's got to the point now where the ABC has become obsessed with balance obsessed with always presenting an element of balance in all of its news and current affairs and this I think sometimes leads it into what I call false balance so presenting two sides of an issue where really there's only one side of the issue that is backed up by the facts of the evidence. It's got to some pretty silly stages. I mean, when we were covering the ABC's coverage of the NBN for New Matilda, we were able to, to discover that the ABC actually got around to commissioning negative reportage on Labor's NBN policy in order to try and balance their negative coverage of the Coalition's NBN policy. So it's actually got to the stage where it can distort the ABC's policy coverage and news.
3: I agree, Ben. Bernard Keane is uh, right to raise uh, serious concerns about it because. Uh Having worked at the ABC, I can tell you the the management. Sometimes there are some strong leaders in editorial management, but sometimes some managers go into what's called the preemptive buckle, <laughs> expecting that uh, the government's going to come for you, so you might as well put downward pressure on the journo's and the content makers and censorship. And uh, as you say, Ben, uh, false balance can come in. Uh, the NBN coverage was a was a distressing case in point. It's redeemed by uh, programs like Media Watch where uh, such are the nature of journalists that if everybody's being observant they can raise the flag and uh, ra- uh, blow the whistle and say this is not right and come in to support the poor journalists who've been pressured. The ABC's a flawed institution of course, the ABC makes mistakes, there's inexperience and We need strong editorial leadership at the ABC to to say even if they did put fair and balanced in there, uh, that, uh, as Mitch Fifield, the minister, said under interview by Barry Cassidy, it's the weight of evidence, the journalism. You're not meant to be agnostic as a journalist. Agnosticism defeats journalism. The whole process of editorial judgment is to say, why are we raising this matter with the public? What's the lead? What is the most important thing in all the material that we've got to raise with the viewers the listeners and the readers and everybody uh, in print uh, in in broadcast journalism have to make ha- we have to make those decisions so fair and balanced is all very well you have to show that you've you've looked at every angle but in your editorial judgment this is the angle that the public should be made aware of
1: Well, unfortunately, that is all we have time for today. Quentin, thank you so much for being here. Pleasure. Margaret, thank you for your time. And Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for listening. If you like the show, please leave us a review on your podcast player or tell a friend. I'm Olivia Rosenman. Catch you next time on 4th Estate.